All right, let's get this show started. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Welcome to the very first uh, Behind the Shield episode, a monthly gathering of cybersecurity professionals and enthusiasts discussing uh, the industry's hot topics, current events, and everything cybersecurity. My name is Marco Estrella, and I'm going to be your host for today. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to uh, get a little, uh, uh, some housekeeping out of the way. Um, so this is the first Behind the Shield event. So bear with us as we iron out a few of the kinks, if there are any. Uh, you can also send us feedback after the show. Uh, let, us, let us know what you thought and, um, you know, so that we can make the next one better. Uh, I also want you to know that Behind the Shield was designed to be uh, a relaxed environment discussion. There is no sales pitches here. There's nobody that's going to come and, and, and brainwash you with a specific solution or, or product and drill down into, into vendor mode. So you just want to have a just a normal, calm discussion, open discussion, uh, and you can ask your questions. And um, we hope to present you with quality content, basically, and to see you again in the future. We want you to come back and enjoy just discussing cybersecurity with us. The agenda is quite simple. We're going to start, uh, we always start with a 30-minute uh, hot topics uh, review, uh, just the discussion on current events, what's happening out there in the industry. And then a spotlight guest is coming to talk to us about a specific um, subject related to cybersecurity for about 15 minutes. And the last 15 minutes will be uh, reserved for questions. If you have any questions uh, that Come up, come to mind. I'm going to try to get them throughout the show. Uh, if not, we're going to try to. Uh, I'll try to, to answer them in the last 15 minute portion. Please use the uh, Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom, uh, so you can see. Uh, if you set your questions there, uh, I'll be able to see them, and tr I'll try to get to as many as I can. Uh, as well, you can uh, play around a little bit with the uh, the views, the the viewing. Uh, you can see us uh, side by side, or there's also a gallery mode where you can see everybody at the same time. Or just take our pictures out of the way, right? Take our, or just get our faces out of the way. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, today's spotlight sponsor for uh, for the first uh, episode is Navilogic, uh, a cybersecurity consultancy firm, consultation firm based out of Maple Grove, Minnesota. Uh, our guest speaker is Bob Bennett. Will be Bob Bennett one of Navilogic's co-founders. He's going to be presenting to us a talk called Adventures in Third-Party Risk Management. So that's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, I have already heard it, so stick around for that. Uh, before we get to all those topics, let's start with the first section of our show, which is the Hot Topics segment. Uh, and I have three panelists. The first panelist, uh, which comes straight out of the red corner, um, red team, Professional Christos Simotas, uh, Virtual Guardian's Offensive Security Team Leader. Um, Christos has been practicing offensive security for well over a decade now, and has managed to be uh, has even managed to be elected to the EC Council Wall of Fame. Welcome, Christos. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Nice to be out on of, board. Thanks for having me on board. Out of the blue corner, now uh, we have Patrick Naum. Uh, ESI Technologies Executive Vice President. Patrick has been with ESI now for over 25 years 
And when I asked him yesterday, how do you want me to introduce you today? He just said, uh, just say that I spend most of my days trying to find ways to defend my customers against the likes of Christos. So that should be a, a, a good uh, a good bout right there. Yeah, and in contrast to the wall of uh, fame, I don't want to be on the wall of shame, right? That's all, <laughs> it's all about that. Yeah, and uh, sometimes when things can get out of hand, I always need a second referee to help me out. So we added a third panelist today, which is none other than our spotlight sponsor today, Bob Bennett, uh, will help me keep things civil. So let's get started. Enough housekeeping. Uh, let's jump right into it. So gentlemen, welcome to BTS. Um, I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of things, you know, always turning and changing in the cybersecurity industry, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And, and who are we kidding? Most of the time bad, unfortunately. Uh, in the past uh, few weeks, there was uh, some news, some disturbing news, actually, uh, concerning China's APT41, also known as the WinTI group. Okay, And uh, it's a hacking group. Uh, that uh, that's uh, been uh, allegedly responsible for the theft of intellectual property of over a dozen multinational companies. So I think that this is a pretty important piece of news. So I'd like Christos, if you can just uh, give us uh, the details of what happened exactly. So <clears throat> it's funny you bring that up, Marco. So this actually has a bit of history. Um, you guys ever heard of a guy named Ron Deeper? Ron Deeper, no. So Ron Deeper, uh, back in 2001, was a University of Toronto professor. And he had a hunch about the internet that wasn't just going to spark joy. Uh, this guy actually studied how intelligence agencies were using satellites to verify arms agreements and wondered if the same technologies could be used to kind of help out civil society. He he, he founded a company, I'm not sure if any of you ever heard this, it's called Citizens Lab. And the idea was to create like a, like a human rights watchdog, if you will, like kind of something out of the CSI, where you would have powers to basically misusing technologies into account. Okay. And it's funny because 21 years ago, since this guy's spidey sense went off, about the internet not being all rainbows and ponies and unicorns, uh, he turned out to be exactly right. Let me tell you a little bit about where APT41 started and where it's progressed into. Uh, you've all heard of the Dalai Lama, right? So this particular holy figure invited um, the Citizens Lab over to check out some anomalies about 10 years back on their computer networks. And what they figured out was... Uh, they not only figured out that the Dalai Lama's computer was hacked, but they also uncovered a huge network of cyber espionage. And it's essentially the citizen's lab that uncovered Chinese state-sponsored intelligence, gathering operation that targeted governments in 103 different countries. This is 10 years ago, right? So these guys back then, they were called GhostNet, unrelated. Today, though, in the last 40 years, you know, we've seen quite a few changes in the global economy, for example, where we have a class of billionaires now, oligarchs and a world full of clients willing to pay top dollar to stay in power. And because the spyware is widely available, you can literally order sophisticated privatized subversion campaigns against any target as easy as ordering a sweater on Amazon. So compared to the olden days where you had to do kind of like surveillance, 
sending agents to place bugs. You can literally, literally have your own cyber espionage operation. So APT41 decided after they were found by Citizens Group. Now, this is in 2012, where they were starting to attack uh, video game targets in Sony. And uh, I'm sure you all remember that, right? And, and they expanded their reach, believe it or not, in the last 10 years. They've expanded their reach to pretty much encompass everything from healthcare, telecoms, tech firms, film, media companies. They've broken into everything. And it's, it's funny to mention APT41, and we'll get to the news of what happened because it is interesting for a discussion. But let me just remind you a little bit of what these guys can do. In one instance, they were caught by FireEye deploying 150 pieces of unique handmade, homemade malware in a one year long campaign against a single target. Right. So these are these are people with free time, unlimited budget and access to every brain that we as an industry, we don't have access to. They have them. Right. Crystal. So, I mean, how do they identify their targets? I think the target identification system is based on intellectual property today. So back in the past, their their hunger was for finance. So they were responsible for ransomware. They were responsible for blackmail. They were responsible for um, more or less breaking into companies and then holding their data accountable. Today, uh, in the latest news, actually, it's it's, it's a good question, actually, Patrick, and it's going to help me bring up my next point. Um, Two weeks ago, a new Boston report came out um, called Cyber Reason, the company that, that, that did it. And they unearthed a malicious campaign dubbed Operation Cuckabees. And what APT41, who started in 2009 and is still around, was caught doing? They're caught exfiltrating hundreds of gigabytes of intellectual property and sensitive data. So today, what they're after, today, the way they pick their clients is if they can access something that will help the Chinese and their government steal our intellectual properties to help advance their culture and their nation, that's what they're after. And this isn't for free. They're selling this to their own government. They're selling this to their own government, right? And we're not talking crap like uh, little intellectual properties. We're talking blueprints, diagrams, formulas, manufacturing-related proprietary data from companies expanding technology, manufacturing in North America, Europe, and Asia. This is huge, right? This is huge. I was going to say, Crystals, that you know when you think something that you said blew my mind is the fact that they've been doing it since more than 2012. So sometimes when we have our own discussions with our customers and we're talking about penetration testing, we're talking about all sorts of, of types of tests to see if they're, they're, they're protected. Uh, we always say that the bad guys have unlimited funds, unlimited yeah. time, and unlo- have yeah. a lot of motivation. Here's the yeah. exact proof. And uh, so more than 10 years. And sometimes, you know, customer has, you know, budget for uh, three, four weeks. And so imagine compared to somebody who's, Who's, who's sending you 150 different malwares for, 10, for over a year well, on a single campaign. Well, this is, this is the issue, right? That as I explained earlier now, th- this is an industry that's for sale. It means that if you're a billionaire or you want to be a billionaire, 
You could simply hire one of these APT. APT, by the way, for those that don't know on the call, Good. means that it's an advanced persistent threat, right? Yeah, these are the cream of the crop of hackers. These are the people that decided not to do their nine to five and just live in the dark. They live in the shadows, right? Uh, these these particular these particular groups are are sometimes running a better corporate structure than actual corporations. This is why they're successful. This is why they are relevant. And you could find some of these companies literally advertising on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. They're not hiding. They're Christo, not hiding. So they're, they're very Bob, public about what they're doing. Yeah. And, and, uh, Christos, I want to say you, you, you talk about the way that they can test and sample all these malwares over a course of time. And I think we see this in the, you know, in the Cookabees attack. Um, it said it was going on since 2019 and yeah. Cyber Reason found it on accident. Right. Yeah, and it's course. through. And now that they know what to look for, they see it all over the place. in a lot of these companies stealing, like you said, primarily intellectual property. Yeah. So we and you look at the you look at their relationship with the Chinese government. It, it is sort of a cooperative there. Right. Whereas yeah. we look at it and separate our private sector from our public sector. We know it's happening. But at the same, you know, that we're doing similar things. But we don't talk about it as much or as openly, but um, Patrick, I want to ask you when, when something like that is going on and you're talking to clients and you're looking at that defensive side um, you know, I know I've got a little experience with that too, but what are you, what are you thinking about? What are we advising them and, and what are they coming to you with? Very good uh, question, uh, Bob, you know, and, and the key, again, I'll say, I'll repeat it, advanced persistent threat, right? So that's what we're dealing with for the most part. Um, you know, the complexities of, of, of the conversation with clients have a lot to do with the attack surface. It's, it starts there because, you know, most CISOs and, and IT managers, they're aware of a certain amount of risk that they have to deal with every day. But now the business is asking for SaaS applications. They're migrating the cloud. Uh, a lot of organizations still think, and wrongfully so, that Microsoft, Azure, and Google will protect them or, and are secure. But they forget that the container may be more secure, but what you put inside, you're responsible for, right? So user access, segregation of rights, uh, you know, just a negligent action could wipe out all your uh, your instances in any of those clouds and applications. So we, f we forget about that. You know, some people forget about that. Um, so it has a lot to do with the attack surface, right? So all things being equal, uh, in the past, when you had perimeter security and you, you knew where your branch offices and out offices were, you had a bit more control because you had visibility. Now, all of a sudden, your data permeates across SaaS platforms, across cloud platforms, uh, archive, you know, all sorts of different uh, areas. The footprint is huge. And, and that's why we need to come back to the basics. And, and you know, although... Uh, you know, Crystal's uh, his, his job is to scare everyone and, and to show us uh, what's what. Uh, uh, we also have to have, put a blue hat once in a while and say, listen, there is low hanging fruit out there. There is hope, uh, you know, and that's why we have the concept of, of, of red and, and, and blue, as we discussed. Right. It's a, it's a tug of war uh, and we need to, to think worst case scenario. But when you come down to. Uh, what an organization could do today is, is back to the basics. It's uh, proper security awareness. Uh, I'm thinking ransomware protection, right? The missing or the weakest link is what we do. MFA solutions, right? 
if you get that brute force uh, attack on passwords, well, guess what? With MFAs, you you buy time and and, and you buy availability. Um, you know, segmenting network resources. The, the key word in advanced persistent threats is is the persistence, and persistence is created. And, and guys, you know, if I say something out of out of line, tell me. But uh, one of the factors of persistent is the is the lateral movement, right? It's the ability to get in from one area and laterally move across your network to other systems, applications, subnet, and networks. Well, if you do proper network segmentation or micro-segmentation, you could, you could quarantine or you could limit that lateral movement. And there are a lot of solutions out there and architectures that, uh, that could be designed in, in, to mitigate or at least to, to slow down the process and enable the organization's SOCs or IT professionals to buy time to identify and and bring sh- you know shed light on what's going on. These guys have literally been living off of the land for three years undetected. Are you enjoying Behind the Shield? Enjoy it more without commercials. Watch us live without interruption by registering for our virtual event each month. Visit virtualguardian.com slash event and check out what's planned for the next Behind the Shield. Remember, when you're behind the shield, you're ahead of the game. And, and again, uh, you know, coming back to APT, and I invite a lot of you to take a look at that, you know, the meter attack uh, framework, right? And this is mainly directed to your security professionals and maybe Marco, you could put up a link. So meters, MIT's research and engineering uh, uh, department came up with the attack framework, which is essentially, uh, you know, making sure that uh, all the advanced or adversarial tacti- uh, t- uh, techniques, uh, tactics, and, and common knowledge are published. So if you look up you know, on the attack, you could see what APT41 and other AP uh, groups are doing and, and, and typically how they attack, what they do in order to better defend. But we're in another category, and I'll let maybe you know, Christos and, and Bob elaborate. Now, let me, let me ask you guys just to take this a point further because talking about all these hacks and risks and this, that, and the other, let's attach some dollars to this, right? So if I were to tell you that these guys stole blueprint diagrams of fighter jets, helicopters, missiles, pharmaceuticals, drugs around diabetes, obesity, depression, COVID, what would you what would you put as a yearly cost of the theft of these trade secrets? What do you guys think it is? Very hard to calculate. Very hard to calculate, yeah. Right? But also and the impact downstream and over the years, right? What happens because of that? Or yeah. even take that to what I'm going to talk about later, third parties. If I know your third parties, I know potential ways to get into your network beyond where I'm at already. That's right. See, yeah. the FBI, just for this particular, just for this particular um reported that these are trade secrets that are anywhere between 225 billion. To 600 billion. That's more than like some country's entire GDP put together. But it's right? also that, people's that, jobs, that, right? Think in a sec, right? Yeah. It's researchers' jobs. It's uh, you know. That's right. Work if we look at their, if we look at their actual assessment, right? These guys are talking about trillions because the real impact, like Bob said, it's not something we're going to see now. We're going to see the impact in five years from now, 10 years from now, when we think we have the upper hand on pharmaceuticals and energy and defense. And all of a sudden, we're going to look at China and say, oh, how did they bridge the gap so quickly without any resources? Or I, know Mar- 
I know Marco's going to pull the hook on us, but you know, we have to also mention that coming back to the enterprise level, you know, this is state government research. You know, a typical ransomware, the cost is still $2 million. I don't know a lot of people that could afford, you know, a $2 million hit, you know, based on ransomware. So we also have to bring it back in perspective to enterprise, you know, sizes and, and whatnot. Yeah. Marco. Yes, gentlemen, we this like I we can probably do the whole hour on this, but I'd like to touch on a second hot topic, uh, if, if we may. Um, so it, it's completely different subject. Earlier this year, the giant pharmaceutical uh, company, biopharmaceutical company Merck, won a $1.4 billion lawsuit against its insurance company over the NotPetya attack, the 2017 NotPetya attack. So that, you know, that the attack was in 2017 and they just won this year the lawsuit because their insurance company didn't want to cover them anymore. So this is kind of the first concrete real example that will probably have ramifications uh, on, on cybersecurity insurance everywhere. And I'd like you, Patrick, to, to kind of give us your opinion well, on thanks, Marco. Uh, how that's going to affect is, uh, the Canadian companies. It's quite and the interesting because we saw a insurance. lot of trends from the cyber insurance, like the insurance company in general last year, re- increasing premiums, reducing payouts, making requirements to get insured more complicated. And every time I meet a customer, either if the customer doesn't address the issue right away to talk about how could you help me well, first of all, the, the, do, do these increases make sense? Can you help me comply? If they don't talk about the subject, I ask the question. And, and typically it's my insurance went up, my premiums went up, my payouts are down. What do I do? And, you know, there was a, a good market for cyber insurance over the last few years, but the pandemic hit. And guess what? You know, they had to pay out a lot of ransomware, um, you know, um, ransoms. And there was a lot of damages because as we all went virtual home, you know, we had to secure, we go from securing a perimeter, as I said earlier, to as many offices as, as we have employees, right, in their various homes. So the insurance companies are not in the business of losing money. Well, they lost money based on cyber insurance. So, but this this took it a notch more, right? When I heard about this uh, at the beginning of the year, I was like, where is this going to end? Because the case here was not about not paying ransomware because the company was negligent. The moment uh, the threat of uh, Russia uh, invading Ukraine came about, what ended up happening is, as you know, in all of our insurance uh, insurance policies, you have two main things, right? That um, you know, pr- limit damages are basically tell your you know your insurance companies they don't need to pay out premiums. It's acts of war and terrorism. Well, guess what? Hackers came from Russia. NoPetya was demonstrated as being a Russian attack. We're in a wartime uh, situation, so we're not going to pay. That's what uh, Ace American was uh, was claiming, and finally they, they lost. But what's going to happen now is that all the policies are going to be rewritten. And you could bet that this will be either limiting payouts or clarifying in which cases if they're state-sponsored terrorism or, 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 or I would say, ha- attacks in times of war, the policies will be rewritten. So it becomes a question of what do organizations do today? Because you either have organizations that cannot be covered, that are going to be covered, but they'll pay more, and that will pay and have less uh, payout possibilities. Uh, 
And the experts were saying, it's like, how much money will you, you, you can't, you can't save your business from investing in cybersecurity by relying on your insurer. Doesn't make any sense. It's not best practice. You know, it doesn't mean, and it applies with driving your car, you know, living in your house. You can't act in a negligent manner and have a safety net. So what amount of premiums are companies going to pay versus spending that money in, in beefing up their own security, which by the way, they need to do anyways, because the payouts are reducing. So we're in a case now where, where there, there's a paradigm shift in terms of risk management, where there's going to be a lot less emphasis put on cyber insurance, more on cybersecurity, with maybe the deltas covered by, by cyber insurance, which, which also means that there's going to be more and more specialized cyber insurance policies out there and not the mixed back. Because in the case of Merck, 1.4 billion, well, the way the policy was written, they paid, they had to pay for everything, direct damage, you know, new computers, uh, the labor associated with it, the, all the incident response uh, considerations about uh, PR, public relations and everything else. So yeah, I, I, I have it here, Patrick, uh, in the article, 135 million in lost revenue, 175 million in remediation costs, uh, 870 million to remediate disruption and encrypted files and improve overall security and acquire new equipment. That'll never happen again. It's Insurance just, will not uh, be on the hook for all that. It will never happen again, I, I tell you now. So they're rewriting the policies or increasing the premium. Bob, do you, uh, did you have anything to add on, the, on that topic? Yeah, I think the, that point from Patrick is really important in the fact of what what do our organizations that we serve have to do now? And I think that's looking across the program to see where are those gaps, um, not just in my coverage, right? Where do I need to beef up? What are those scenarios I need to protect against? And looking at those scenarios to say, where is my insurance actually going to cover it? And what are those triggers? It takes a lot more analysis, not just of your program, but also of that insurance policy and then communication across your stakeholders uh, to make sure that you're covering those grounds. Because I think when it comes down to it, information security and, and data protection, it's another, it's that risk reward balance. You don't want to pay more than it's worth, but you also want to know where you are and not end, end up somewhere on accident, you want to be there intentionally. And there's a lot of work that goes into that to know where that is and where your gaps are. Absolutely. Okay. You know, there, maybe to close, at least from my perspective. Sure, go ahead, go ahead. What we found as well, and what the customers have been telling us in the past, the insurance companies would ask for, you know, proper policies and procedures to ensure best practices about cybersecurity, um, having proper perimeter security, perimeter, uh, perimeter security. Now they're very prescriptive. You need an EDR. You need encryption on your laptops and your data. They're literally telling them how to operate and conduct business, yeah. obviously based on the current frameworks that we're all, you know, NIST and whatnot. But they're becoming very, very prescriptive in terms of what they require. So think of this, right? You could be out of insurance, even if you decide to pay insurance, you could be out of insurance because what they're going to say is, you need to deploy all these solutions. And you, we all know in a large enterprise environment, you don't click on your fingers and deploy an EDR, right? Uh, so you, there's a lot of work to do. So you may be out of insurance or with limited payout during the rollout of those solutions. So companies are, are need to be proactive and identify very quickly what they need to do on the roadmap for the next few years. And, and like Bob said, make sure they mitigate in the meantime, because while they're not covered, 
they won't be covered 100% if they don't have the, the tools in place as required. So. We, uh, we had um, a third topic here, but we're starting to uh, come up on the line. Uh, but I wanted to give uh, the, the closing word on the hot topics uh, to Christos, who, um, who, who was a, a very positive guy and wanted to end on a, uh, on a positive note. Uh, there was an article just uh, this week, even it's very recent. The FBI and the NSA published a top ten list of "do not do this" to you know uh, if you if you want to let uh, hackers in. Uh, it's a "do not do" list, basically. And uh, I'm we won't have time to go through it uh, today, but give us one, Christos. What's what's one thing companies can do? Uh, pretty important. Two two things. Two things. All right. Uh, two things. Go ahead. Real, real quick. You got about a minute. Okay. The first and most important one that I think is a minimum requirement nowadays, because we are, after all, in 2022, right? We've had 12 years to plug this in, is the none other famous multi-factor authentication. I think uh, we're all more or less familiar with the little tokens that we get and the little calls and the text messages. And this world of, of multi-factor authentication is still fairly safe i must say and it's the minimum you can do and it's not just to enable it one place it's to enable it globally because they will find your hole faster than their hole will be reported to you right see you guys laughing i think you know why <laughs> okay um and there's another one guys it's very easy to do this one okay keep your softwares up to date Everything has a reminder. Everything emails you. There's little pop-ups on the bottom of your computer screen telling you, you know, your Java's out of date, your Oracle's out of date, your Windows is out of date. You know, they're doing the work to keep the R&D going, to keep you safe. The least you could do is keep your stuff up to date, right? And I promise you on the next, on the next one in June, uh, when we're going to have our next behind the shield, we're going to go over the rest of the list because they are fairly important to understand uh, what's the expected minimum requirement nowadays, right? But those are the two most important that I think everybody could do fairly easily, fairly simply uh, is multi-factor authentication and keep your software up to date. Do you need to report a cyber threat? Virtual Guardian's emergency response team can take immediate action. Responding and recovery are vital to ensure your business critical services are maintained. Visit virtualguardian.com and click on report a cyber threat in the upper right hand corner or call us at 1-800-401-TECH. That's 1-800-401-8324. Amazing, Christos. Thank you. Thank you landed you. that. You, you landed so that uh, beautiful. Thank you so um, much, guys. So we're going to, that ends the hot topic portion. We're going to move on to the spotlight uh, talk by, uh, given by Bob. I just want to remind everybody that uh, if, feel free, again, to put your questions in the Q&A button. You just click the Q&A button. You put your questions there. And uh, I can try getting in uh, to them um, and ask Bob while he speaks or just after he's done speaking. So without further ado, uh, Bob, please, the floor is yours. All right. Thanks. I'll try to keep everybody awake here, but uh, I want to make sure everybody takes a little break here and they uh, get their uh, caffeine at this time <laughs> during the meeting. All right. I'll jump in. Um, can you see my screen? Absolutely. 
Perfect. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, when we were talking about what a spotlight would be here and we, we kind of said adventures in third party risk management, I think some of the topics just discussed, uh, get us into that a little bit, but also, um, it really is kind of an adventure. And I think to, to Patrick's comment about how we are expanding our footprint, well, we're doing that with other resources from other providers and they use other providers as well. And so keeping track of that um, and, and being flexible um, in terms of how we go to market with new solutions, um, you know, this is a, it's a pretty fast developing area. So really what I'm doing with adventures today is um, providing some insights uh, from a service we provide on, on doing those assessments for our clients. So I will jump into that uh, right away here without any delay. Um, talking about this, uh, our third parties and vendors, right? I like this slide only because it really talks about, look, everywhere in your organization, you're using, uh, you're outsourcing, you're using other vendors. And in the center, as you can see, it gets all, uh, it gets a little more complicated when they have all of their subcontractors as well that they use. Uh, and keeping track of that and keeping track of your footprint is a, is a challenge we all have. In addition to managing those contracts, managing service levels, um, you know, figuring out uh, where does it all go? Uh, where does it all come from? If you're a manufacturing organization, right? When you look at something like a conflict uh, minerals, conflict resource minerals, where do all, where did those come from? And how do I, how do I ensure compliance to that? It gets pretty complicated. So um, if I reference uh, today, the GRCX platform that we use, uh, it's a business process automation tool um, built on, uh, on OnSpring. It's our own platform, um, which you can also call a GRC tool. And you can see the various different categories um, that we have solutions in today. And you'll notice down in the lower right too, anything that people are doing today process-wise with a spreadsheet and email, there's a far better way to do it. And especially when uh, when that has relationships or you're bringing in data with other you know from other tooling uh, when you're coordinating various teams um, you know these tools really can make a difference with limited staffing and bring teams together to be more effective in their programs but today we're talking uh, in the upper right hand corner uh, with the third party risk management so as i mentioned um Bringing to bear in conversation today some of the things that we see with our clients, I want to give a little bit of context of the service we provide. So our customer, we make it pretty easy for them. You can see them on the front end of this process and on the back end of the process. They give us a contact and we send an assessment to them. So um, what we're doing at that point, we highlight our security scorecard integration on this service. Um, we send them an assessment. Uh, which is our questionnaire. We've, we've condensed a questionnaire to really find out uh, and get to the heart of the answers that really present risk to our, to the companies that, that we operate on behalf of and um, get those pretty quickly. So they hand off to us that assessment and you'll notice what they get on the end is that final delivery and report. But it's actually a little better than that because the security scorecard in the information, when, when we get an assessment back, this is the, the meat of the engagement to say, okay, I see your policy says this, but when I look at a tool like a security scorecard, or, you know, we can pull in financial information potentially too from Dun and Bradstreet, from others and say, 
I see you say this, but out here you've got insecure configurations. And when we talk about the different paths for compromise for an organization, the corporate environment that they have um, still can have an impact, especially if they don't have something like Mark, uh, I'm sorry, like Christo said, on uh, multi-factor authentication, people accessing a service environment in a hosted cloud uh, from that corporate environment, that is an avenue of compromise. And so you have to look at both of those environments. And so that's where we start to look at, is there consistency between what your policy says and between what these technical tools and other things tell us about you uh, as an organization and in and that service environment? So we do the work and we do the lifting to say, based on what you're telling us, here's the risks to your organization, to the service that they provide you. Um, and here's the things that we think you should address. And sometimes there's other things you should consider. We can't make every determination because we don't know the details of their, um, their environment, their risk profile, which, you know, third-party risk is just one avenue of risk to the business that can impact all sorts of, of enterprise risks, not just the, um, the security, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So um, in context of that service, we find a lot out in, in between the step with the vendor and our analysis of what they're telling us. And this is what um, you know, provides us with a lot of information and insight into what's going on out there today and, uh, and gives us the adventures to talk about. Just a quick conversation of the benefits. Um, you know, every, every company we work with, they have limited staff. Third-party risk management is uh, usually a part-time job for somebody. And for those where it's a full-time job, they often spend so much time in just conducting the assessments and the back and forth. They don't really get to manage what that risk is and communicate with their business. And so that's the, a lot of the value that we provide them is to say, we see these, we know the answers, we can true these up, we've got integration and we give you the list so that we make them and their programs a lot more effective for their organization. And it's a, for us, it's high touch for them. We make it pretty easy. And I'll say the other thing we do for them is to say they can leverage our expertise with their organization and say, these guys do a lot of these and um, I'm going to trust them as the experts. This is not me. You guys may think I'm an alarmist internally. They're telling us and here's the risk and here's the data to back it up. So I think it really supports a, a security team and specifically that third party risk management team in doing the service at the same time. So I'm going to jump in here and really let's start talking about the adventures. Um, got some observations on the assessments we do. Uh, at this point, the, the responses we get are really quite good. People are used to this by now. And they, I think, have recognized that the way we're doing this, um, as opposed to other organizations, uh, a long full SIG, uh, for example, is a lot more effective and they can be straightforward with us um, and we get pretty good information, but responsiveness is good, especially with the companies that have a good track record. So if you're a, if you're a service provider in a hosted environment, you know, you're going to be producing a SOC two for us and sharing it with us. Um, and so I think people are getting used to this now. Uh, second, the observation of that, we know that it's a lot faster when you don't have to spin up, uh, or when you can, you know, spin up hardware almost in an automated fashion, you can apply updates in an automated fashion. And because of that, you're seeing newer, uh, newer players come to the market. They're small shops, they're a handful of people, and they are also wearing many hats. And so I think, again, I'll say 
our assessment gets us to that information uh, a little faster into those risks with these smaller providers at the same time. And we notice a lot more, um, their SOC 2 certifications are pending. They're young shops. They haven't been able to, you know, if they have a SOC 2 type one, that's a point in time. We're still looking and waiting that time frame to say, yes, but let's get that type two where we have it consistent over time and you can tell us how you're performing. So that's a, that's a common, um, you know, thing that we come up with right now. And then you're also seeing a lot of, um, a lot of uh, subcontracting from those third parties where they get something from someone else as well, especially the smaller ones where they can't do everything. They're going to look for those places where they can provide uh, those services to their clients um, more efficiently. And so I think one of the big cautions is that last bullet point uh, on this list. And that is, when market timing is important, when funding into the venture capital market for these early companies, whether they're product companies or whether they're software companies, no matter what they do um, right now, people are pushing really hard because funding is available and they're trying to get more things done in a short time frame. And so we try to be really careful with that too. And we caution our clients as to when things are really ready, or what are the conditions under which we feel more comfortable about those risks? But we're knowing, uh, you know, we're observing that companies that want to get these things going, the security teams are often saying, I'm really not comfortable with this here. And, and what I think we help them do is to say when they're getting pressed from their business side, that's great can we address these things? Like these things are what really get me over a bar of comfort. And so we can facilitate some of those negotiations. And in fact, even we get involved in some of those and provide further context. Um, but we see that as another, um, you know, another thing happening out there right now in third-party risk management. So moving on, um, program observations. Uh, I think you just heard me talk about it. When you're getting pressed as a security team, um, by your stakeholders, by your business people in the company. I, I think one of the things we remind our clients is, um, you know, don't fall on your sword. You are here to help facilitate what is an acceptable risk for the business. Business has to go on. You're helping those business leaders make those informed decisions um, and, and come up with solutions. You're a partner into helping the business go forward, but they need your expertise to know, um, you know, under what conditions and tell me what you really believe. And I think we're giving them backing to do that and, and to be better um you know, better partners with the business in this process. And so I think those, those integrations and knowing when vendors come on and having those communications are very key. Now, at the same time, when risk has to be accepted, uh, you know, in the next two bullet points and there's escalation, um, we have to know our roles and, and, uh, and we have to work with those business owners. Um, and one of the big points I want to make here and that communication is sometimes a business owner will own one area um, of risk that may impact the whole company, but the other business leaders didn't have a chance to discuss that and be informed. But yet if their brand is at risk because of a decision being made to move forward with a vendor that should be discussed um, at a senior leadership level. And those are some delicate uh, conversations uh, that have to happen and we can help facilitate those. Patrick, I see you got your hand up. 
Actually, finish the, finish the slide because you may answer the question with your last point, and then I'll, I'll chime in. Sorry. Yep, yep. And, and, and I think that risk ownership is a conversation in the organizations that has to take place. And, and again, I think I started the slide with it. I'll say it again. Um, as security professionals, we are there to advise. Um, we do not own the risk, but we, are, we have a specialty and we have an input. Um, to help understand that business person's need or the leadership team's need and help them make that determination. Is this safe or is this really going to put us uh, on the cover of the news? And everybody knows when you have an incident, it's, it, you know, when, when we were talking about the cost of something like a, like uh, Bees, um early on, you can talk about hard costs, but there are so many more soft costs. You can take half of an organization out of their normal operations for six to 12 months recovery covering from an incident like that uh, and then some, and, and those costs are just hard to uh, hard to capture and it's hard to recover from. It, it does harm a business in terms of their operational uh, efficiency. Are you buried in spreadsheets or using cumbersome tools to manage your GRC program? We can help. Navalogic's GRCX is a fully supported, managed or co-managed cloud-based platform that offers a cost-effective user-friendly operation that stands well above other solutions. Navalogic's GRCX platform, powered by OnSpring, lets you control data, workflow, automation, and reporting without the headache of creating custom code. Call us at 888-837-1968 or email us at info at navalogic.com. Years ago, I met a utilities organization and the IT department was complaining because they, they had this proliferation of data. And, you know, it's always about who deletes the data, right? No one wanted to take responsibility because you have certain information that has to be, you know, financial seven years. In their case, I'm not going to say what I was going to say because it was going to divulge who it was, but think of an engineering asset, you know, usually it's a hundred years that they need to keep records on because they're long-term uh, assets and investments. Um, so, no one deletes any, anything because no one wants to take the responsibility because you don't know the various retention rules and, and responsibilities associated with that. When it comes to third-party assessments and I look at the final authority, final decision, who do you typically find as the signing authority to say, we're going ahead with this third-party in this manner and you know these are the risks and and you know, who who ultimately will sign off and take responsibility in those yeah, cases? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think um, when it comes to data, and you're talking about not just access of the data, but now you're talking about that data lifecycle. I'm going to say that specifically tends to go to a legal group because they're the ones who have the uh, the regulatory and the legal compliance um, requirements and function to say. So even if IT does it they need to be given the policy um, by that, by the legal group. And that has to be something that filters down through your security program. So that is something we're going to feed into with our service. Um, unless we are a part of, you know, our advisory services to come in and help them establish that function um, and, um, and actually execute that as well from an IT perspective as, as part of the program. Okay, I have a uh, I have a question also. Um, oh, 
we're, uh, we have about 10 minutes left. I'm going to slide a question in for you, seeing as we're on this topic here. Uh, generally speaking, when you, when you do this project with your customers, uh, risk management project, um, how does it improve the relationship with the vendors typically after you're done with them? Yeah, I think, uh, there are some cases where when we're talking to a vendor, um, we actually build that bridge so that they understand who their contact is, why we're asking things, because we're really looking for some honesty is we've got to understand where things are at on their end and at the company uh, at our client end to make sure we're doing the right thing. And so, um, you know, we find that we're actually a good facilitator being in the middle, um, not just with the security team and the business owners, but between the vendor and the client, uh, the different teams at the client. Okay. Thanks. All right. This is, uh, I'm going to jump to my last slide here. Then, um, I think, uh, really in, in terms of, um, what we tend to look at, I want to identify some gaps because I'm seeing a trend here that I really want to talk about. And I want people to think about, um, when people look at something traditional like ERM and enterprise risk management, we know that information security crosses all of it, no matter if it's a, you know, three dimensions of a cube. But what I hear a lot of lately with the third party pieces is as we go off to the cloud, um, it's really operational risk and people need to understand dependencies and what if things do go wrong? What are we going to do? How do we operate? Am I testing my recovery scenarios? Are my assumptions of what's going to happen correct? And, and am I able to get to that recovery and the resume stage of operations within a time frame I expect? And so the intersection of business impact, uh, disaster recovery, and, and business continuity to that, uh, to that recover stage is really becoming important because we're complicating it with, with our third parties um, and, and the complexity that, that that brings in. And at the same time, having staff that remember, we have to go through this to make sure we can operate. And so, um, and in the interest of time, I know I've gone over a little bit here. Um, I think that's an important thing within third parties I want to bring up today. And, and if people aren't familiar with Kronos, um, in their hosted environment, doing their time reporting, as well as their payroll service, um, there have been some organizations and even some public sector organizations that have been uh, highly affected in, uh, uh, by what happened with the, the Kronos breach. Um, and their uh, their availability in, in that's had impacted their ability to pay their employees um, and to even maintain time tracking and meet laws and regulation compliance. And so that's why uh, employees had filed suit. And so I think you're going to see more situations like that, whether it's a shared cloud, whether it's um, you know hybrid, no matter how you have that configured, we've got to pay attention to those things because the you know there can be a lot of detriment to the organization to employees, um, and, and to those businesses out there. And that's what I wanted to leave you with today. All right. Thank you, Bob. That was great. Good information. Let me just double check here in the Q and a. Okay. Doesn't seem to be any questions here, but I do have one, uh, myself. Uh, so for the people listening, feel free to uh, chime in with a question, but uh, the one that I, I saw your last slide there with the word, with the gap talking about the gaps, and I was wondering if you know if you do find gaps, um, you know, with the third parties, how do you kind of force them? Well, not force them, but I mean, how do you compel them to 
you know, to deal with those gaps basically. Yeah. You know, Marco, what we basically say and what we're handing off um, to our clients is to say what we recommend and when when things are pretty easy to see, we give them that list that they can say, OK, business owner, these are the things that our, our advisors, our professional services team is telling us we need to do before they'll feel good about it. Um, and, and I think those are the things that you can go back and put into your contracts. Now, when I was on the corporate side of the world, when I did that with my business owners and said, Hey, I want to, I want you to understand what this is and where it's coming from and what I think we should do. They own that they've taken it, uh, take the bull by the horns and, and it's a, it's a great partnership and we get more accomplished that way. Okay. So that's the polite way is uh, we recommend that that's the polite way. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, thank you, Bob. Very enlightening. Thank you very much. Uh, so there's no, I have question. a little question for Bob. Oh, crystals, please. Yeah, I got a little question. You guys remember back in, uh, when was this? I think it was in 2016 when the university of Michigan unveiled a backdoor within an actual microprocessor measured, uh, six by two micro microns. Is it invisible? You guys remember that? Yeah, that was in with a series of things in in the preceding years as well. Um, there was a time I was at at a retailer, and um, you know, you look at your payment systems, and so now you're talking about on the circuit boards. How do I make sure of my supply chain on down and know that somebody's not, you know, take something as technical as an EEPROM, right? How do yeah. I know somebody's not programming something on a chip that should be there? Not just That's is right. there an extra chip on there that can backdoor cellular, right? How do you do that? That is a detailed effort. Um, and again, you know, I'll, I'll bring it back to one of the early conversations. If this is where you're going, Christos, um, going. you know, bringing up MITRE, looking at those attack vectors, knowing what threats and what vectors you are susceptible to and where it's important to where it could impact your business is all about knowing that proper risk reward balance and where you're going to spend your money and where you're at risk. Bob, let me, let me ask a question. And this is for all of you guys, right? We've been using computers 20, 25, some of us 30 years, right? Would you say that we are reaching the point in the history of these products existing where we should start vetting what kind of data we put on these computers? What does that mean? It means that just to clarify things that were written in 1600 BC are still on tablets. They're not available on computer, right? Today, for example, we have the Canadian passport. That's not yet digital. It's a physical piece of paper, right? By September, they're planning on making this digital. Yeah. Do you think this is a good idea to be yeah. having yeah. to be having everything digitized. Is this is this a direction we need to be going in, or should we be more vigilant on vetting what is digital and what is not digital, or or, or at the very least separating the networks or segregating or, or something? Yeah, I don't know. I give me think, give me your thoughts, guys. Give me your I thoughts. think it'll be it's a, a, inevitable you know the digital uh, citizen if you will and that's it's not just a passport it's it's everything else we'll still need mitigation uh you know and, and risk management because i don't think it's stoppable but you need a, an alternate plan you need a backup and actually there's a commission in canada about the exact thing you're, you're talking about 
And the panel of experts asked the government, okay, how do you plan on functioning if there's downtime? If I'm going to the, uh, you know, to the DMV or whatnot, or I'm going on a trip and the systems are down and I, I gotta, you know, I gotta take my plane, I gotta get my new permit or whatever it is, you need to have a backup plan and you need to function offline or, or an alternate way. And, and there was blank stares on the side of the government. They didn't know how to answer that, right? Because if you're making an investment, you're going all in, you're not, you're not thinking that you'll need to go back. Like we don't think that we need to protect our backups and test them and make them immutable uh, because we have a backup yet. It's your last line of defense against ransomware. A lot of companies don't think that to, to do that. And it's such a simple thing to do. Um, I think it's not about vetting what we put where. I think it's going to happen anyways. We just have to make sure to protect ourselves personally and, and try to be careful in what we do, like, you know, taking your backups or whatnot. But the moment it'll be mainstream and your, your citizenship will be digital, there's going to be a whole lot of risks and problems. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for your feedback on that, Patrick. I didn't, I didn't Thank bring you. anything new or productive or no solutions. So, uh, 2.58 uh, Eastern Time. So, we're coming up on the hour, uh, everyone. So, um, I just wanted to let you know, well, first of all, uh, that was great stuff. Uh, for the first time, I think that went pretty well. I hope that everybody enjoyed that. I wanted to let everybody know that the Behind the Shield is going to be back for at least another four shows uh, at the very least. Uh, we already have other companies that have signed up. So we already know, I believe uh, it's um, uh, the next one will be June 16. June, June 16. There you go. Where we will get straight from uh, Checkpoint's CTO's office. We will be receiving Jane Arnett. She's going to be our guest. Nice. Uh, she's nice. strategic advisor and cybersecurity evangelist for Checkpoint. So she's going to be talking to us about uh, strong, how strong security frameworks can help drive operational efficiency and effectiveness. So that's going to be her topic. Is she going to be on the panel as well or just a spotlight speaker? I mean, I think we'll we'll put her on the panel too. Yeah, of yeah. course. Sure. Nice. Sure, sure, sure. could have a good conversation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, before, and uh, Bob as well. before we sign off and close the first show here, I want to thank... Uh, uh, today's uh, Behind the Shield sponsor, Navilogic, uh, our guest, uh, Bob Bennett. Uh, Hats off. Christos Simotas, Patrick Naum, all your insights, very good stuff. Uh, I hope that everybody on the line uh, found the last 60 minutes informative, pertinent, you enjoyed your time, because I would love to see you next month behind the shield. Thank yep. you, everybody. See you guys. Have a good week. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye.